Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, as we saw last week, this template for prayer or model prayer that Jesus taught us has great depth. It points us to God and our need of salvation, but it also covers the daily prayer life of the believer. And we've been trying to wrestle with that balance as I'm trying to teach you that Jesus was showing at the beginning when he taught this model for prayer, he was using it to show people how to come to God for salvation. But it's also, that's how awesome this prayer is, in this template for prayer. It also is a prayer we can pray on a daily basis or the template for prayer on a daily basis. It applies to both. Now, unfortunately, some people have tried to say that since Jesus taught us to pray to our Father in heaven, as it says in the beginning of this prayer, that this means that this prayer is only for believers. Because if you're not saved, Satan's your father. Go to John chapter 8. Let me show you what they're referring to. In John chapter 8, look at verses 39 through 47. John chapter 8, verse 39. The Jews answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, because of this, there are those that say, since Jesus said that if you're a believer in God and believer in Jesus, then God's your father, and if you're an unbeliever, Satan is your father. They quickly assume that since Jesus taught them to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, this prayer is only for believers. Some of you might have even read some commentaries along that line or heard someone say that. I want to take a little time tonight to take you through, the, not the whole of Scripture, but a lot, to help you to understand you have to be real careful about taking one passage of Scripture and building a doctrine out of it. Let the whole of Scripture, again, like I've been teaching you for years, de develop your, your doctrine. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at this passage that they're referring to, and we're going to look at our passage in Matthew 6 and some other passages in Scripture to see whether or not Jesus is talking to just believers or is he talking to everybody. I'm going to show you by the end of our time, just give you a little heads up, that Jesus is talking to everybody, not just believers. All right. So first off, if we were to just break down this section here in John chapter 8, look at verses, uh, again, 39 through 41. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, then you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. 
you're doing the works that your father did. Now they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So in this section right here, they said, Abraham's our father. And Jesus kind of says to him, well, if he were your father, you'd be doing the stuff that Abraham did. Keep that in mind. So in a sense, he's saying, Abraham's not your father. But was Abraham their father? I want to make sure you're with me here because it's going to be, we're going to go a little deep here. Was Abraham their father? Yes. Genealogically, I can't even say it. Uh, Yes, they were were children of Abraham. But he's also at the same time saying, Abraham's not your father because you're not acting like Abraham. Keep that in mind. Jump over in the same chapter, chapter 8, look at verses 48 through 59. In verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying to Jesus, they say, are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say if anyone keeps your word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. But you have not known him. I know him. And if I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So here, does Jesus say that Abraham is their father? Yes. Isn't that interesting? Just a few verses earlier, he said, if Abraham were your father, you'd be doing the things he does. So you're going to see there's a depth to this. I want you to stick with me here because we're not even yet scratching the surface. Go back to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, look at verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then he says, watch out, don't be like the hypocrites. Remember that term hypocrite? And we looked at the fact that it was describing the people who were lost. They were pretending to be something they knew they weren't. Yet Jesus uses the term Father toward them as well. Your father who's in heaven, you won't get any reward from him. Look at verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Again, he's using that term father in reference to people that don't know him. Look down again at verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. By the way, when he says your Father won't forgive your trespasses, is he talking to believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers, yeah. Well, and we'll get to that when we get to that and more. But he's also referring to unbelievers. So is it possible that Jesus is using the term Father and still talking to unbelievers? Yes! Yes, oh, but there's way more than that. I want you to see how this term father has so many different levels and so many different meanings. Go to Genesis chapter 45. 
I told you we were going to use the whole of Scripture. Go to Genesis chapter 45. Look at verses 1 through 8. So then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother. I am your brother whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there is yet five years in which there'll be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for many survivors, keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So was Joseph genetically Pharaoh's father? Then how did he become a father to Pharaoh? I'm sorry? He assigned it? Oh, I heard it. I heard it back here somewhere. He had the wisdom of God and he was giving counsel and guidance and Pharaoh was listening to his wisdom and guidance so he became like a father to Pharaoh. Again, I want you to see this. When Jesus is teaching, pray to your father. He's trying to teach them about relationship. He's trying to teach them about guidance and direction and getting your instruction from the heavenly father. When we act like Satan, we're getting our direction from him. And we're acting like he's our father. Do you understand? Go to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. In 1 Chronicles chapter 28, look at verses 1 through 7. This is one of the first times that I see the term God the Father being used. I'm not saying it's the very first. I haven't done a full, full, full study that I'd like to. But in my digging and digging, I found this is one of the first times I ever see God using the term Father to describe himself in a relationship with man. In Genesis, sorry, 1 Chronicles 28, look at verses 1 through 7. It says, David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and livestock of the king and his sons together with the palace officials, the mighty men and all the seasoned warriors. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house for the uh, house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building but God said to me, you may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the, Lord, the God, Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader, and in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel." He said to me, It is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish my kingdom, sorry, establish his kingdom forever, if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. 
So here we see God said to David, I'm going to become a father to Solomon. He's going to be my son, and I'm going to be his father. Go to Philemon. Go to Philemon. It's right before Hebrews. You're welcome. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. Philemon, verses 8, 9, and 10. Paul says to Philemon, he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you from my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, did Paul physically give birth to Onesimus? How did he become his father? Counseled partially. What happened? Wisdom and counseling, but more than that. No, he didn't adopt him. Good question, though, Jeremy. He didn't adopt him. He definitely put him under his wing, but what happened? How did, what happened to Onesimus when he ran into Paul? He became a believer. He got saved. He became part of the family. But Paul said, I became a spiritual father to him. I gave birth to him, if you will, or God gave birth to him. But I was a part of that. If you were to go to, well, I'm not going to have you turn there. But if you go to Galatians chapter 4, Paul says, I think it's around verse 19. He says, I feel like I'm in the pains of childbirth with you guys again. He saw himself as a spiritual father. Well, let me give you another example of that. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. All this is going to tie together. So stick with me here. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 14 through 16. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. He was writing to people that came to faith under his ministry. What I want you to see is when God is, Jesus is teaching that we're to pray to the Father. Don't let people say that that prayer is only for the Christians. He's wanting us to all become Christians. He's wanting us to all become children of God. But as we saw in the context and we saw in other places, he's saying to them, I want you to understand this relationship that God wants to have with you. He wants to be the one guiding you and directing you. He wants to be your father. Well, Abraham's our father. Well, if Abraham were your father, you'd be getting your direction from Abraham. Isn't that what Jesus said? But you're getting your direction from your father, who is Satan. So that term has a lot of meaning to it. But the reason Jesus is using this term father is because he's wanting them to understand that God, Almighty God, wants a relationship with you, and he wants to be the one giving guidance and direction in your life. So is this Lord's Prayer only for Christians? No. It's something you can use to show people how they can become children of God and call him your father. By the way, go back to 1 Chronicles, go to chapter 29 this time. This is the first time that I found, again, there's other places, I'm sure, but in my digging, I didn't take the time to go fully, fully, fully into it. First Chronicles chapter 29, it's the first time I see God being described as a father in, it, in this way. I just showed you in chapter 28 how God said to David, I'm going to become a father to Solomon and he'll become a son to me. 
But in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and if I was in 1 Chronicles, I'd be able to read it to you. There we go. I was in 2 Chronicles. I was real close. Look at verse 10. And look at 10 through 13. Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our what? Our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth and all the, in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. That's one of the first times I found anywhere in the scripture where God is described as the father to the nation of Israel and to people. He's been called the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but here David says, you're God and you're our father. Jesus is continuing that thought as he's teaching this prayer. Jesus also, if you know, in Luke 15, told a parable of a loving father. We always know it as the prodigal son. But that's just a title that's been given to it. I wish we had called it the story of the loving father. Because we always get focused on the prodigal son. But... Who's really the main focus of this story? The father. And in this story of the loving father who had two sons, one rebelled and repented and the other was self-righteous. Was he a father to only the one who repented? Or was he also a father to the one who was self-righteous? To both. Folks, listen to me. God is our heavenly father. He made, created, gave birth to every human being on the earth. Acts chapter 17, Paul says that. From one man, he made every nation of men. So we all have come from God. He created us all. But because of sin, we all chose to ignore his fatherhood. And we came under the tutelage, if you will, or the direction or the guidance of Satan. And he became like a father to us. And we act like him. Until our original father, who created us for a relationship with him, is allowed to get back to our hearts as he woos us back to him. And when we go to him and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And when we go to him, we become his children. And he then, well, we're going to talk about that in just a second. He makes our, our relationship with him permanent, but we'll get to that in just a second. But we then should be looking like and acting like who? God the Father. Let me show you something that's along this line in 1 John chapter 3. Go to 1 John chapter 3. Look at verses 8 through 10. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you see it? Here he says, look. You want evidence of someone that's really saved? They're going to look like their daddy, the Heavenly Father. You want evidence of someone that's lost? 
they're going to look like their daddy, Satan. So folks, did you catch that? It's not going to say, you want evidence of someone that's saved? They're a church member. No. You want evidence of someone that's saved? They were baptized. Nope. You want evidence of someone that's saved? There's going to be fruit of the Spirit of God. Love and joy and peace, patience, gentleness. I could go on. I hope you get the idea. But our original Father, Creator, continually woos us back to Him through repentance and faith and His provision for our sins and Jesus' Son. And when we do respond in faith, we become permanent children of God and brothers one of another and Christ. As I told you, be praying. I don't know if First Baptist in the Atlantic is going to ask me to become the transitional pastor here for a season or not. But if they do, that is going to be our focus. We're going to see ourselves as a family, and we're going to focus on the family growing to know Jesus better and loving each other. And that's it. Everything else will fall into place. We're not going to focus on evangelism. We're not going to focus on the building. We're not going to focus on budgets. We're not going to focus on all that stuff. We're going to focus on getting to know Jesus more and loving each other. And as we see ourselves as a family, God will take care of everything else, and that's going to be the focus. So what I want to do in just a little bit of time we have here, because we still got to get back to Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer, is I want to show you just briefly. You want to have fun? You just launch from these scriptures I'm about to show you and do a study on your own that talks about the relationship change that God's wanting people to realize when they come to know him. Go to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John chapter 1. Look at verses 10 through 14. And then verse 18. He, this is Jesus, John chapter 1 verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, this is his own people, and his own people did not receive him, the Jews. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from who? From the Father, full of grace and truth. Jump down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God. Who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That's a deep verse there right there. Look closely again. No one's ever seen God. The only God, though, who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. How can God be at his own side? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So if Jesus' purpose is to reveal the Father to those who don't know him, can you use the term Father for people that don't know him? Yes, he wants them to become his children. He is their father who created them, but because of sin, they stopped acting like their father, and they started acting like Satan and became children of Satan. That's why Jesus said to the Jews, if Abraham were your father, which he is, you would act like him. Did you catch it? If God were your father, which he is, you would act like him. Do you see the difference? But... If we die in that condition where we have not received the true permanent sonship through faith in Jesus Christ, we end up going 
we're with the one we chose to go with, which is Satan, and that's hell. Go to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 14 through 17. We just saw in John chapter 1 that when we receive him by faith, we become children of God, born of the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Again, we become children of God. Now, one more passage. Go to John chapter 20. I love this. I don't know how many of you caught this. Because as you're turning to John chapter 20, I could show you how Jesus says to His disciples in John chapter 15, I don't call you servants anymore. Because a servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I call you friends. But he uses a different term after the cross, after his death, after his resurrection. In John chapter 20, look at verse 17. Jesus said to her, one of the women at the tomb, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my what? Brothers, and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We go from being servants of God to friends of God to becoming children of God. And when that happens, Jesus said, when he rose from the dead, you go tell my brothers. You go tell my brothers. Folks, this prayer will be a, a lot more effective. This model for prayer, if you will, this template for prayer will definitely be a lot more effective for someone who has become a child of God, without question. But to say that it's only for those would miss the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Because at that time, he's teaching who? People who had not yet been saved, who had not yet come to know who he was. People that needed to know the depth of their sin, how to get it right, how to turn to God. And he's showing them, pray to your father so that you can become his children. Now let's go back. When Jesus is teaching on prayer, he's using the term father to denote relationship and God's desired relationship with him. But if anyone is unwilling to come to the Father and acknowledge His holiness and His kingdom come and receive the bread from heaven and will not forgive others, they are rejecting His fatherhood and choosing Satan to be their father. And that's why He said, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. This is why we need to pray, as He teaches us in this prayer, why we need to pray that God the Father's kingdom come, that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we see here, he's saying, I want you to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, you're holy, and I'm not. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, again, I could take three weeks just on this phrase, his kingdom come, his will be done. Hopefully, though, most of you who have listened to much of my teaching in the book of Revelation, in the book of Ezekiel, we've dealt with the fact that there is a literal kingdom coming on the earth. 
And that is a huge part of what he's teaching us here, that we need to be praying for his kingdom to come. We need to be looking for him to come and set up his kingdom on the earth. And I'll roughly reference that. But at the same time, his kingdom begins when you trust him as your savior. When he becomes your Lord, when he becomes your God and your father, you no longer live for yourself. By the way, you can double check me in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, 5 verse 15. Sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. Whoever believes in him should no longer live for themselves, but also for the one who died for them. And so, folks, understand this. We now, when we truly come to him as our father and we acknowledge his holiness and our sinfulness as we dealt with last week, we then say it's about you and your plan, not about me and my plan. You're the one that made the world. You're the one that's in charge. You're the ultimate king. Your will be done, not mine. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. And when we trust him as our Savior, we move, as you're about to see, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. By the way, if there's a kingdom, what does there have to be for there to be a kingdom? A king. And who is it? Is it you? Is it me? Have we all applied for the position? Yes, on a daily basis sometimes. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 7, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Remember, he was our father because we were acting like him. We had his influence. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Were we, were we children of God? No. Remember, even though he was our father and he created us and he gave us birth, we chose to become children of Satan. And we were children of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he's raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jump over to Colossians. You're in Ephesians. Jump over a couple of books to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain, some of your translations say kingdom, of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Not only now when he becomes our father permanently through faith in Jesus Christ, do we become children of God, he, we also become under the authority of the king. We come under the authority of the king. Let me ask you a question. You already know the answer, but I just want to hear your answer. Is Jesus the king coming back to this earth literally to set up and rule and reign over the whole earth? Is he going to have every knee acknowledge that he is who he is to the glory of the Father? Is every knee going to bow and every tongue going to confess? Do we know stuff they don't know? We do. We know a lot of stuff they don't know. He's revealed spiritual truth to us that can't be understood by those who don't have the Spirit. We know things that the world doesn't understand. 
You just said emphatically that one day every knee is going to bow, one day every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of the Father. You've just acknowledged that you are his children and that he's taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And as much as that is a day coming, the kingdom begins when we trust him as our Savior. He wants to rule and reign right now. We love to say, one day, every knee's going to bow. And we kind of pridefully think about all those losers out there. They're going to have to bend their knee. Let me ask you again. What about you today? Is he king? Do you surrender? Do you acknowledge his authority? You see, we used to walk when we were in the kingdom of Satan and the passions of our bodies. Do you still walk in the passions of your body? We're going to be getting to fasting in a little bit when we get to this section of the study. You can see it all ties together. Do you still live under the passions of your body? Hopefully not. We still struggle with it. The temptation is there. It doesn't say we never sin. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, if anybody says they don't sin, they lie, and the truth's not in them. But we just also read in 1 John chapter 3 that no one who's been born of God makes a practice of sinning. You can't. Those of you that are saved, you know what I'm talking about. You know that when you sin still now after salvation, you hate it. It just eats at you. You can't confess it fast enough. But I found that the longer I walk with Jesus, I don't become sinless but I sin less. The more I acknowledge his kingship on a daily basis, the more he's allowed to have control. Even though he's there, he's waiting for me not to grieve him or to quench him, but to allow his spirit to do a work in my body that only he can do. When I stop trying to do better for Jesus and stop focusing on not sinning, but actually focus on the fact that he's God, I actually start to get victory over sin. And my wife and kids can tell you, and I will let you ask them, there's been a change in Jim Johnson over the years. What about you? If someone were to ask your spouse, would they tell you that I've seen Jesus do a work in them? My prayer is that the answer is yes. Now, again, don't say, well, I saw it, looked yesterday, I didn't see anything. No, I'm talking over time. I'm not saying there won't be days that you look like the enemy. I'm talking over time. Is there an obvious progression and evidence of the Spirit doing His work? Inwardly, we're being renewed daily, spiritually being renewed. If that has begun, he's going to finish it. And that's what we're looking for. Is he Lord? But as much as we have been spiritually brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, we must not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is teaching us to be looking for the return of Jesus when he will set up his kingdom on the earth. I just want to, just for the fun of it, show you a couple of cool things in the book of Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 1. I think we've been out of Revelation long enough that some of you aren't shaking anymore when I say turn to Book of Revelation. I was an associate pastor of a church in New Orleans years ago, and the pastor taught on the Gospel of Mark for three years. And whenever anybody said, let's turn to Mark, we all went, and we shook. <laughs> Go to Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 8. I want you to see something. Some of you have seen this. I've showed it to you years ago. Some of you maybe have never seen this. Revelation chapter 1, look at verse 8. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the Almighty, sorry, the Alpha, and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let me read it to you again. 
Jesus says, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. That's the beginning of the Greek Hebrew alphabet and the, the end of the alphabet. Says the Lord God, who is and who was and who what? Is to come. Don't miss that. Go to Revelation chapter 22. Look at verse 7. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7. Again, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Jump over to verses 12 and 13 here in chapter 22. 12 and 13. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jump down to verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So is he coming? Well, that's interesting. He was described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8 as the one who is, who was, and is, and is to come. Look at me at Revelation chapter uh, 11. Look at verses 15 through 18. Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 through 18. By the way, this is at the end of the tribulation period. You'll see it's the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. By the way, does that sound familiar to any of you that love the Hallelujah Chorus? That's where it came from. By the way, those of you that don't like 7-11 songs, you've got the people that always fuss about those choruses that sing the same seven words 11 times. Well, the Hallelujah Chorus is that too. By the way... The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Now, some of your translations say is to come. But those, that's not in the earlier manuscripts. Remember how we talked about some things were added? The earlier manuscripts don't have is to come. I could show you another place, but we're not going for the sake of time in Revelation. Twice, because in that context, Jesus is coming back. It's the end of the tribulation period. The seventh trumpet's been blown, and Jesus has begun to reign. And they said, who was and who is? Why do they not say who is to come? Because at that time, he's coming. Woo, that's going to be a party, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time came for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, let me ask you a quick question. Is he coming back? And is he going to right the rights and wrong, take care of the, the wrong, right the wrongs and take care of all that stuff? Yes. But we know stuff they don't know. We know that he's king now. Jesus is teaching us to acknowledge your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, let me tell you, if you prayed that every morning, I think that'd be helpful for you and me. Throughout the day to be reminded. Jesus, there's nothing wrong with telling God what we'd like. Don't pray these weak, wimpy prayers that say, oh God, whatever you want, I just want your will. He laughs. He says, I know you better than that. you got a will, and even though you're pretending you don't have one, I know your heart. Jesus in the garden said, here's my will. I don't want to do this. If there's any way you can take this cup from me, I'm for it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. You want to pray your will be done? Acknowledge what your will actually is. 
Lord, I don't like this. Lord, I don't want this. Lord, could you take it away? But my attitude is, if you choose not to, you're right and you're king and you're best and I trust you. Don't pray, whatever God wants. He's going to show you what you want first so you can lay it down. And we all have wants. Again, for the sake of time, I won't turn there. But in Daniel chapter 7, we see in verses 13 and 14 that Jesus is going to go to the Father and he's going to be handed a kingdom. And he's going to rule and reign on this earth. Philippians chapter 2. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Many of you could quote it, but I want you to see it again. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. The verse we've been talking about, but I want you to see it. Look what it says. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7. This is after Jesus is willing to be a suffering servant and to die a death, even a death on a cross. Therefore, uh, we'll just start in verse 5. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every, every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How many of you were heading to an event and you knew that there was going to be a crowd and you left early to avoid the rush? Do the same thing when it comes to acknowledging Jesus' lordship. There's coming soon a day in which there will be a rush, a crowd of people that will all acknowledge that he is Lord. Uh, why don't you start now and beat the rush? Why don't you start now and beat the rush? Now, much as Jesus is, does care about our daily need of food, back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, give us... This day our daily bread. That's all we're going to deal with in the time we have left tonight. Give us this day our daily bread. As much as Jesus does care about our daily need of food, let me remind you again what he said in Matthew, in Matthew 6, verses 25 and 26. Look at Matthew 6, 25 and 26. He says, Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? By the way, over the years, because of this passage of Scripture, many a time have, when I've started to worry, has God had a bird just happen to fly into our backyard or up onto a tree branch or whatever, and God will just use that to remind me, look, I make sure they're taken care of. I got you. Years ago, uh, a friend of mine, and when I was pastor in Chicago, was having uh, open heart surgery. He was my age, actually a little bit younger, and uh, his wife was extremely concerned, of course, because at that age, it was a very, very serious surgery, and he might die. And he actually, without her knowing it, snuck me a little stuffed bird that they had used over the years as missionaries to remind each other of God's provision. And he said, once I'm in there and the surgery has started, I know you're going to be in the waiting room with my wife. Would you give her this? And as she was sitting in there crying, I was able to pull out this stuffed bird and hand it to Dana. I said, David told me to give you this. And a peace came over her like you wouldn't believe. She cares about the birds. 
He cares about us. So does God know what your needs are physically? In case you're not sure, go to Mark chapter 8. I referenced this passage when I preached this past Sunday at First Indian Atlantic. Mark chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. I love this. In those days, Mark 8 verse 1, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And he does the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 with the seven loaves and a few fish. What jumped off the page at me one day was this. Jesus knew whether or not they'd eat. He wasn't so busy doing his ministry. I had no idea. Sorry, guys, totally forgot. By the way, we've done that a few times, haven't we? How many times do your kids say, is it dinner time yet? We're like, wow, look at the time. I'm really sorry, kids. I totally lost track of the time. Jesus wasn't that way. And not only that, he knew how far everybody had traveled and how far they still had to go. He cares about our physical needs. But I don't believe Jesus is teaching first and foremost here about that. He carries that on later in his message here in Matthew 6. I think what Jesus is pointing to, again, like I've been trying to tell you, is the spiritual need first. Go to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. This is the passages I told you to do your homework on last week, if you remember. Some of you are thinking, are we ever going to get to our homework? Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. They set out from Elam. This is the nation of Israel. They're wandering in the wilderness. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. By the way, don't be in a hurry to be a leader in the church. It ain't fun half the time. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And if you know the story... Every morning they got up and there was this dew and it became bread and they would gather it up and they were told only to gather one day's amount. And if they tried to gather two days amount, what happened? It rotted. But on the day before the Sabbath, they could gather enough and it would be for two days and it wouldn't rot. But he was doing it on a daily basis and he says, I'm going to rain to you bread from heaven. And they were fed this manna for years. But it was more than just physical food. He was teaching them something that Jesus elucidates in John chapter 6. Go to John chapter 6. Yeah, I know, I, I was kind of proud of that word too. I don't know where it came from, but uh, don't ask me what it means, but it sounded like it worked. John chapter 6, look at verses 25 through 59. Now Jesus had just fed the 5,000 he goes to the other side of the lake. And when they found him on the other side, verse 25 of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, 
When did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He said, Don't work for food which just perishes. Work for the food that the Father will give you. Well, what's that? What do we got to do to work, do the work God wants? What is it? Believe. Believe in the one that he sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Oh, by the way, if you need an idea, Jesus, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. By the way, I think that kind of deals with whether or not you can lose your salvation. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Now, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Again, there's the word Father used again, talking about people that aren't believers yet. Who's learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who's from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, I say to you, you say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogues he taught at Capernaum. Now, of course, many of the people there, the scripture says, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. How can I, I don't understand it? And they went away. He turns to the 12 and says, hey, guys, you're free to go too. No one's keeping you here. 
And Peter says, um, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you're the Holy One of God. Now, folks, let's be really honest. These words sound a little crazy, don't they? On the surface. But remember, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the man without the Spirit doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness to him. And then no one seeks God. No one's righteous, not even one. No one even seeks God. No one understands. But when the Spirit of God begins to do His work in the lives of believers, I believe the Bible says He draws everyone. We read it there. No one can come to Him unless the Spirit does His work first, because no one's even looking for God. But the Scripture says, They will all be taught by the Father. Whoever learns and listens comes to Me. You, I've told you this before. You've had teenagers that heard you, but they didn't listen. Hearing and listening are two different things. What I want you to understand is this. When God's Spirit begins His work to open our eyes to our need of salvation, and that the only way to be made right before God and to live forever is to put our faith in Jesus Christ, all of a sudden we begin to understand that when we believe in Jesus and receive Him by faith, we be begin to eat of Him and drink of Him and we have, at that moment, when we trust Him, eternal life. Now, do you need to get saved every day? No. Then why was the manna to be gathered every day? Why does Jesus, if this is referring to Jesus, teach us to pray to the Father, give us this day our daily bread? Because you don't need to get saved every day. You have to trust every day. The relationship begins and it's not culminated until you get to heaven. Folks, if I were to ask you, are you saved? Are you being saved? Or will you be saved? My hope is that your answer is yes. I am saved. I have been justified through faith in Jesus Christ. But I'm being saved. I'm being sanctified and that salvation that has begun, which is mine and eternal and set in, I'm seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus is being manifested on a daily basis as I allow him to be king and Lord of my life. As I allow the spirit who's within me and I've already got all of God I ever need to take control on a daily basis. My spirit is being renewed. I'm walking with him on a daily basis. And one day when Jesus comes, the Bible says he's bringing salvation with him. And on that day, I'll be glorified and it'll be complete. So we need our daily bread. I have dealt with too many Christians over the years, and I'm putting Christians in quotes because I don't know if they truly are or not. But I've dealt with too many people over the years who claim Christ, claim that they've trusted him as their savior, but from that day on have never walked on a daily life of faith. They've trusted in that prayer. They've trusted in that baptism. But from that day on, the whole idea of letting him lead and guide. Remember Romans chapter 8, verse 14? Those who are led of the Spirit are the sons of God. Those of us who understand, yes, God, I'm saved, thank you. But today I need you as well to be in control. I want you to be the Lord of my life today. I want you to do this work that you've begun and finish it, and I believe you will. And I want to yield to it on a daily basis. And you've heard me say it over and over, Colossians 2, verse 6. In the same way in which you receive Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Being rooted and grounded in him. Folks, this prayer shows us how to be saved. But it also is an amazing prayer that you can pray on a daily basis. Isn't that amazing? It's a prayer that shows us how to be saved, yet at the same time 
and guide you in your prayer life on a daily basis. And I can't wait to show you more of it, but that'll have to wait for next week. I love you. Thanks for coming.